Welcome to Writers on Writing on 88.9 KUCI-FM. We're broadcasting from the UC Irvine campus and we're streaming live at KUCI.org. I'm Barbara DeMarca Barrett and today my guest is Lisa Scotaline. Lisa is the number one best-selling Edgar Award-winning author of 33 novels. She has over 30 million copies of her books in print in the U.S. and has been published in 35 countries. Lisa also writes a weekly column with her daughter, Francesca Saratella, for the Philadelphia Inquirer, which has been adapted into a series of memoirs. She served as president of the Mystery Writers of America and has taught a course she developed, Justice and Fiction, at the University of Pennsylvania Law School, her alma mater. She lives in the Philadelphia area. Hi, Lisa. Hi, how are you, Barbara? Thanks for having me. I'm good. I'm so delighted to have you. I, you know, I was so intrigued when I heard you talk. You talked somewhere, maybe it was Book Passage or it was somewhere online a few weeks ago. You talked book about passage. Book yeah. Passage, sure. You talked about Eternal and what inspired it. And I would love for you to tell our listeners about Eternal. Sure. No, and I, I was so happy to talk to Book Passage, and this is great to talk to you too. As I said, I have roots in the in your area. My dad went to UC Berkeley, so this is really, really fun for me. I wish he were here. Um, so I guess, you know, I've written lots of different novels, as you say, and I never really thought of them as thrillers. I just think of them as fast-paced stories, usually about women and uh, you, and about families and love and justice. But this was is sort of an extension of what I've been doing. And it's I guess they're saying it's different because in truth, it is historical. It's it's the story of a love triangle set in fascist Italy. And I really felt that, you know, the inspiration came from, frankly, ages ago when I was in college <laughs> and I took was lucky enough to take a course with Philip Roth. Um, and it was called um, actually Literature of the Holocaust. It was a seminar. And so it was, he would, every year, it was a year long course. We also just read all kinds of novels for the second half of the course. In any event, he introduced us to um, the work of Primo Levi, who was an Italian chemist who was taken by the Nazis and survived, thank God, at Auschwitz and wrote an incredible memoir. And, and the more I learned about the Italian Holocaust, the more I came to understand that I just couldn't believe that it wasn't that well known. And then when I started to learn more about it and learned about, let's say, a real true life event, a war crime, honestly, that occurred in Rome in October 1943. I said, why is this story not told? And honestly, as a person with an interest, you know, as you say, in law and justice and interested in how law doesn't always lead to justice and how, in fact, law can thwart justice or perpetuate injustice. That's exactly what happened during Italian fascism. And you have to understand what happened during Italian fascism to understand what happened when the Nazis occupied Rome. So I said, but I'm a, I'm a fiction writer. I'm a novelist. I don't write, I don't want, you know, no one has to study to read me. So I was like, I wanted to, I just for 40 years, I've wanted to write this book. And I finally did. That's the very long answer. Mm. Well, for me, it was um, about a history of my ancestors I wasn't aware of, and certainly not in that way. I mean, there, you know, a half million Italians died during this time. I had no idea about this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's really a fascinating time period. And it's really a fascinating time period because you, um, you know, it's kind of like I was writing it right as the pandemic came on. I thought this is so interesting because tell a story about three young people in Rome, right? A girl who falls in love with her two childhood best friends, both guys, and they both fall in love with her. And so it's basically a love triangle. But these are people coming of age as fascism is entrenched and beginning to darken. And so it's so fascinating because with the pandemic, I was like, this is very interesting because I was writing at the beginning of the pandemic and I said, you don't really know. You don't know you're entering a historical period when you're living it, right? Like mm -hmm. now we're at the, we hope the end of the pandemic, I'm fully vaccinated as of three days ago, <laughs> right? And I go, wow, we just lived through history. And that, and I, and it was so helpful when I was writing the book because, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's the same themes that I've been writing about, but it's, it's much larger, you know, instead of one family and sort of domestic drama, it's three families and it has this legal and political and, turbulent, dramatic backdrop. And so it, it was a really rich 
it just gave me so much to write about. And I sort of discovered all these little untold stories that were true and organically they folded into the plot. So I really felt like, I felt like it took everything I've had in 30 years of learning to write. And I have written, you know, I've written two novels a year at a time. In the past 10 years, I've written two novels a year. So I feel like I've been practicing and practicing and practicing and finally was able to write Eternal. I'm just so happy that it's, um, you know, that it's been out now and it's seen the light of day and people are loving it. And I'm like, this is just, I feel very lucky and very blessed. I've always felt that way, but lately more so than ever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's got nothing but great reviews and I know, it's great. It's, it's wonderful. You know, there's so many characters and, and I don't know, plot lines to keep track of. And I'm curious if you, how you keep track, how did you keep track of everything here? Do you use spreadsheets? Do you have papers oh. up on your walls? Oh my God. What do you do? No. Barbara, I'm like, a, I, I have written every novel I've ever written. I have no outline. You know, people say, do you know how it ends? I don't even know how it middles. I really don't know anything. And I kind of, <laughs> it's not impressive, but it's absolutely true. And I've decided this is probably a rationale for bad study habits. Like who wants to outline? Honestly, I can't imagine outlining a whole novel and then refilling in the, I think that would be like literary mad libs. I would just hate that. And so that, so what you actually do, if you want me to go there and I'll, I can break it down mm -hmm. for you is that, cause I like to do that. Actually, I want to demystify writing and not everybody thinks it's so hard. It's really not. And uh, basically, it's, it's in it. It's not rocket science. I just decide what this character would happen, what she or he would logically do next. And when you really look at this plot, there's only three main families. And I actually weirdly always have on my computer, I write a little thing. I write a seven word analysis. It is like, uh, you know, a love triangle set in fascist Italy. That's what I had on my thing. So whenever I didn't know what would happen or, or I began to stray, I said, that's not in your story. And Hemingway uh, says, write drunk, edit sober. <laughs> Obviously, not literally, at least not for me. <laughs> but I go, OK, right. Like, just tell what would logically happen next. Elizabeth is the main character. She's a young woman. She's trying to decide between these guys. It's also this novel's a lot about identity. She's like, well, she wants to become a journalist. Unfortunately, it's just one Mussolini is deciding that all the newspapers has to be propaganda. And she, you know, so what will she do? How will she, what will she become? You know, I sort of gave her just briefly the, my first, I thought, well, even though it's such a large canvas, World War II, 20 year period during Mussolini's, the Ventennio, I said, well, you've got to make it small. You've got to make it relatable. So I said, well, Elizabeth, well, what, what's my seminal? What is my, I have so many memories of being young. I remember getting my first bra. I mean, it was a big deal. I, and I was lucky. Like I had a great mother. She was like, let's go. But I gave Elisabetta my background in that I was a bit of a tomboy. And it was the girls in sixth grade, you know, a group of mean girls who came to me and said, you need a bra. And I was like, why? Well, I have an undershirt and that's fine. And my mother was happy, you know, she was happy to take me out. And we had a we had an apple pie and horn and hard arts. I'll never forget. No one knows what that is anymore. Oh, I know what that is. Yeah. Right. Warm apple pie at horn. And I was like, I was in heaven. I'll never forget the day. So of course I because Elizabeth unfortunately doesn't have a wonderful mother. But so basically what you do is you just go, okay, now here the first chapter is Elizabeth decides, you know what? I think Marco is kind of attractive. I might he might be the first boy I ever kiss. And just when she thinks that her other best friend, Sandro, a thoughtful, really loving guy too, gives her a kiss. And then I was like, okay, now what would happen next? Well, Marco would think something and that's chapter two. And then chapter three is Sandra would think something. And then we start to understand that Marco, even though he's enormously attractive, sexy, popular, all that stuff, he has a secret. He can't read. And I'm sort of like, because modern readers will recognize he's dyslexic, but mm -hmm. in 1930s Rome, like then what that is. So it was sort of interesting for me because he became a way to explore, you know, why does fascism appeal? You know, Mussolini invented, it was the first fascist party. And it was so interesting to me because when you look at Italian fascism, it was, it, it, it did not begin as anti-Semitic. It, in fact, as, as I say in the book, in the background of the book, um, you know, there was a 50% intermarriage rate between Jews and Gentiles. Uh, the mayor of Rome was Jewish. There was not anti-Semitism. It wasn't until Mussolini decided to join forces with Hitler. Now, the effect of that in the beginning that it wasn't uh, anti-Semitic was that Italian Jews 
joined the fascist party in the same percentage as Gentiles. And I said, that's really so uniquely interesting because when you do the research, you start to understand that of course we all know that Roman Catholicism is seated in the Vatican City. But how many people know, because I didn't know it, that Rome, the Jewish ghetto in Rome as it's called, which I've been to many times and never really realized that it was the, um, it is the home of the oldest continuously existing Jewish community in Western civilization. Mm-hmm. And I said, this doesn't get better than this because it's right across from St. Peter's. It's a 20 minute walk and you have Sandro and have him be Jewish. And then what is going to happen between these friends is as, as Mussolini begins to enact these anti-Semitic laws, which basically in short are death by a thousand cuts to Jews. And what conflict does that create? And what does Marco do about it? Because as he's attracted to fascism because he, feels inferior since he has these reading issues that he keeps secret. Um, fascism says to him, oh, you're, you, you shouldn't feel inferior to anyone. You're a son of Lazio, you're Roman. And that ultra-nationalism, that Italianità, Romanità appeals to him. And so it became sort of any good novel, I think to a certain extent will be about identity. What is a woman? What is a man? What is a hero? What is a mother? And then this was really like, well, like Marco says, what am I fascist? Am I my uniform? And Sandro's father, who's Jewish and also a devout fascist, when he is stripped of his fascist partyhood and stripped of even his Italian citizenship, will say, who am I? And because identity crisis, in short, is something you can have when you're 30, when you're 40, when you're 50, when you're 65 like me. So I really wanted to explore all of that in the, in the depth and the richness that 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 the times afforded me, and I, I feel so lovely. I feel so lucky that it, you know, that I was able to do it. I really do. Hmm. So, just so I understand, you don't plot, mm-hmm. but this has this was so thought out. I mean, did you? It's did you? Did you do all your thinking and planning in your head, and then no, go to I the page? No, I just don't. I don't think it's, it looks thought out. I just, <laughs> I just really. Look, I'm divorced twice for a reason. I'm. I'm very comical. I like jump right in, baby. I'm like, yeah, I think I'm in love. So that's how I just kind of start. I'll tell you this secret in my opinion. First off, you have to really focus intently. It's really simple. I I live alone. Um, I don't have a lot going on. (laughs) I read a lot. I think a lot. And I um, sit down and write every day, 2000 words. And when I'm writing, I put my phone away because phones are the devil, (laughs) at least when you're trying to concentrate on the long form. I also think about it in terms of I'm in training. I read a lot. I try not to check my phone a million times. I don't want to retrain my brain for that little dopamine hit when I'm writing. Um, And the great, really great thing is that, and I hope that people who are thinking about writing find this as as, as inspiring as I do, which is, you know, you as Anne Lamott says, you give yourself permission to write a shitty first draft, as she says. The real, the way it looks thought out is because in the edit, you become, you, you write the thing in first draft and write, you write drunk. And then when you have finally have a story, then all you have to do, I'm the happiest person in the world. Because then I go, I have a story. I've actually told myself the story. I told myself the story. I figured it out as I went along. All I had to do was think really, really hard take all of my meager superpowers and apply them right in that moment. It's very Zen. You have to like be there now and focus. And as Stephen King says, imagine the scene, then reproduce it for the reader. That's really all it takes. Now the edit was harder because I had too much material and I actually filmed a lot of the videos and research videos I have on my website. People can see them, book clubs can see them, but I had to really take a test now because I said, well, you, it can't be too long a book. Um, and so then I just go back and edit and go, do I, in the same way that I would look at a chat, at a sentence and go, do I need this sentence? I actually say to the sentence, weirdly, justify yourself. Like this sentence has to justify its existence because I have learned that I think I'm kind of known for my pacing. And I said, you have to write a historical fiction, but at the pace of a thriller, this can't be a ponderous, load like this has to be moving and so I took out what really couldn't justify itself and it it happily thank you for saying so it looks very well thought out but it isn't it's just 
it's just a very focused long-term effort that when you are completed, you're able to make better. And mm -hmm. it, that's a really, that's all there is to writing a novel. <laughs> I swear to God, ask me anything. I want to help people. I'll tell you about that soon. So how do you know what to leave out? I, I would imagine your first draft was longer than this. My first draft was a thousand pages, which I've never done in my life. Never. You, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of practiced now. I sort of, you know, usually with it, it doesn't matter. The bottom line is with Eternal, I had a lot. And actually I said, my editor is a real a wonderful guy. His name is Mark Tavani and he's uh, at, at Putnam. And he said, you know, I really, I said it to him and he's, I think this book needs to begin on page 371. I was like, <laughs> and then I looked at it and I was like, oh God, he's right. And that very night, he called me at 9.30 at night, which was really weird. But he says now, you know, I just was on fire. I had to tell you. And he said a lot of nice things about the book. But he also said, you need to lose a third. And then I spread it out on my floor. I mean, well, my office isn't that big. But how I knew what to cut was, first off, I'm kind of an impatient person. So I was like, and I, when I read, I sit down and read. So I'll read, like, I can read a book. I'll sit down and read 300, 400 pages. So I'm very aware, for example... When somebody repeats something like don't repeat things um also don't you don't need to reestablish it you're always you know the great thing about writing the way i do is that once you decide what is going to happen like that somebody's going to kiss elizabeth after she's just made a decision on the opposite guy what happens next defines not only who she is because character is what they do you don't sit there and go she's brave she's undaunted, you show her being undaunted. Well, the other trick is once you've shown her being undaunted, you don't need to show it 55 times. You might want to have the uh, challenges ratchet up, which actually happens in this novel because we see her be pretty undaunted. And then by the way, her whole family falls apart and I don't give anything away, but she, and then there's a war. And then she goes from a being a girl who's trying to decide between two guys to realizing I am on my own. I need to find my footing and I need to stay alive. You know, there's one point where she thinks to herself, she becomes aware that her family is lower class vis-a-vis -vis her two friends. And then by the end of the war, she says, you know, the thing that war taught her is that there is only one class and that is survivors. So you sort of see her learn, but I just thought of that in the moment. I undergo this with them and I don't know how they will come out of it. And it's just like life that way, which is kind of what's, to me, magical about books. I mean, because I think readers feel that. Readers identify. I realized that I wrote a book about what happened to Mussolini during, during these three characters during Mussolini's time and during the Nazi occupation. But it ends up being a novel about hardship and how people endure hardship. And you certainly don't set out to do that. But like, Another thing that happens with writing, if I write about something with specificity, if it's authentic enough, people hear that too. Just like I'm talking now, like I feel it. I know it. I taught it to myself over 35 years at this point. So I'm going, I know that if I write it true, they feel it. It's really simple. And it's really a, a kind of like a tribute to the human imagination, which happens in fiction. Whereas if I really tell some emotional truth or some literal truth, people will go, oh my God, I know that feeling. I have, I get that. And so that's, you know, why books matter, honestly. Mm. So a few minutes ago, you said, you know, you ratchet up the challenges mm -hmm. and, and keep it going like that. And I'm wondering if that's something you learned from writing thrillers or is that, does that come natural to you as a storyteller? Well, in the, the, I don't, I know that in this, in eternal, those, the history gave me some of those challenges. Like, for example, these, these barrage of anti-Semitic laws, which I'll just briefly recap for you. The first one kind of said, um, you can't own property. The second one, these are over a series of time. You know, like I referred to it as death by a thousand cups. Second was you can't practice your profession. Third is you're thrown out of the fascist party. The fourth is you're stripped of Italian citizenship. Now, when I wrote this book, I was like, I must tell you that 
even though I had this idea so long ago, I've been for 40 years going, someone's going to write this book, Lisa, you better write this book, you better get on it. And no one ever did. And I was like, you know what, you better now. So basically, well, what was a challenge for me is I said, well, look, for a series of four anti-Semitic laws can be repetitive in drama. But I have done so much research for this and I have been to Rome. I went to the memorial service of the people who were killed during this October 1943 event, the 75th anniversary. So unlike any novel I've ever written before, there were real life victims. And I didn't want to cut any corners. And also, I don't want to sound like a jerk, but I'm just saying to you that Eternal, although it is fiction, is really definitive with respect to what happened to Italian Jews in Rome in this time period. Mm -hmm. And I made sure my research was right. And I even consulted a historian about it, two historians actually. But my point is with respect to the barrage. So I said, you know what, you've got to, I'm not going to not tell one of those events because real people were affected by each one of those laws. But you can see how each one of them gets worse and worse and worse. And, and in a way, how, in, as a matter of fact, that what the Italian fascists did when Italy finally surrendered and the Nazis occupied Rome actually set up Italian Jews for what the Nazis would do to them. So both were complicit and both were culpable. You know, part of what drove me is I, as a former lawyer, and I've, as you said, I've taught this course, I am interested in justice. And it, what bothered me, I think, so much about the underlying true life story and eternal is that it wasn't like Nuremberg where there was globally significant trials. And I taught those trials in my class because it's a really good example. The Nuremberg laws are a good example, again, of when laws perpetrate injustice. And so when I asked one of these horse historians who I, who I won't name, I said to him, why was there no Nuremberg about this? And he said, nobody wanted another Nuremberg. Hmm. And as soon as he said that, I was like, I do. You know, you don't get a free. I'm like crazy that way. I'm like, you don't get a free murder. You don't get that. You don't. I don't care if it's one or fifteen hundred or six million. You don't get it. And so then for me, it became, well, look, there's no one to prosecute because they're dead and the victims, sadly, are dead. But when I saw their families and I thought, well, all I can do, what what I can do is actually tell the story. And that's what I did. So the history, the true life history gave me so much of that ratcheting, which is in itself horrifying and heartbreaking. My job was just to honestly tell the true and to get out of the way. Mm. Right. Yeah, I, I've never thought of myself as a reader of historical fiction, but more and more I am becoming a reader of historical fiction because of you know, finding history in novels, I think is really an interesting way to learn it. And um, like I said, I didn't know, I didn't know it any of this really. I mean, you talked about uh, the October 16th, 1943 event, 10,000 of Rome's 12,000 Jews survived by hiding in the Vatican, monasteries, convents, and homes. Wow. It's really amazing also because I uncovered, you know, like little stories of, of the heroism, heroism of like, and real people. I mean, and I don't want to give too much away, but like even that Monsignor, Hugo Flaherty, who was actually called the Scarlet Pimpernel of the Vatican because he went about in disguises because he had to evade the Nazis. And he, who knew that the Vatican had 700 apartments and, and hid Jews there. And even that story, you just can't even believe these stories. You know, there's a, a, a hospital that undergoes this incredible ruse. And so for me, it was, you know, there's always themes and variation. And there's a lot has been written about World War II that's fiction. And, you know, and I thought, but there's still a lot untold. And I didn't want to forsake the theme. The theme is that terrible, you know, terrible injustice and war crimes were perpetrated against the Jews of Italy and of Rome. And that is the headline. And the, the variation is that there were people who tried to help. And it was such a fascinating mix of what does the Vatican do? What does it not do? What do the Jews themselves do to help themselves, which is so much. And there was just such a mix of it there that I couldn't not tell it. And I thought it, um, 
I'm just pleased that it really worked. And I agree with you about historical fiction. I read really widely and love nonfiction too. So, and I always like to learn something, even in my thrillers, I'm always like, it's all real. It's all real police procedure, real law, real criminal law, real, you know, if you said a murder, I'm not one of these people that's always had like the bodies pile up. I have a murder. It's credibly figured out. And we feel the impact because let me tell you, in years of writing about the effects of violent crime, um, I understand that. And I've talked to plenty of victims. So it's never given short shrift. And my task in Eternal was make sure that even though this is writ large, you feel its impact. And I think I did that. I really wanted to honor these victims. And um, I've gotten some wonderful you know, email and people saying that and the reviews say that, which really mattered to me, you know. So you're right about historical fiction. It's fascinating. I love, I love reading. I, I like to learn from everything I read. And that doesn't mean it can't be a fun or entertaining read. I mean, I like to think of this book as really dramatic and interesting. I mean, weirdly, I've never done this before, but I've listened to my own audiobook <laughs> because it's and I've, I've three times, if you can imagine, because it's and I, I take no credit for that. It's a it's a performance. It's, I listen to it as if it, it's not mine. And it isn't. Uh, Cassandra Campbell and Eduardo Bellarini is such a genius. Oh, and, interesting. Yeah. Oh, my God. This guy's unbelievable. And he performs it. And I hear nuances that I didn't bring to it. And it just to experience the history of the time through that performance. Um, history is very interesting. You know, when, that's why I sort of titled it Eternal, because I started to come to think about Rome being a, a palimpsest of so many things, not only to the architecture, but I thought that the greatest palimpsest of all, you know, is, is a family, is a generation and how time is conflated in families. And, and I really wanted to show that in some visible way in this book, you know, it's about the three young people, but it's also about their parents. When it opened, the story opens out. I like those minor characters very much, uh, maybe because I'm so family oriented and the Nona character is a lot my own mother. So it was really, I'm tied up in this book, obviously. Lost mm. my damn mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you're going to make me listen to the audio version of the book. Oh, you'll die. They're there. Bellarini, so <laughs> he's unbelievable. I've, I've just bought every audio book this guy recorded. I'm, I'm listening to Dante <laughs> because he, he just recorded the Divine Comedy. I'm like, oh my God, now I finally understand this. <laughs> Well, you all are listening to Writers on Writing, and I'm with Lisa Scodelin. Her book is Eternal, published by Putnam. Um, how far can you stray from the facts in historical fiction? Me? Not at all. Mm -hmm. No. The, 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 and I, I wrote an author's note that was very clear about what's true and what's not, because there are real people. Here's the thing. There are real people in this book who have conversations with fictional people. Now, obviously, those conversations are fictional, but the ones that were critical, uh, and we won't give anything away, but there's one, for example, a Nazi officer is talking to Matsu. Now, a real Nazi officer, right, head of the Gestapo, Herbert Kapler, he is talking to a, a fictional character in a really seminal conversation, a really critical meeting. Now, I did the research, and there, the, what happened during that conversation is recorded. So we know what was said. And I credit those authors who found that out. And then, but I just put a guy in the room so that we can experience what that would have been like. But this was too important a history. I, I never, I have always, I'm just too, I never, I never, I always keep it real. It's the Philly in me. I just keep it real, man. It's all of my books are set somewhere. And as I say, everything about it has to be real. I'm also aware especially as an observer and a reader and someone who studies justice in fiction, that many, many people get their idea about what is real law and what is real procedure from fiction. And I think authors who write it like me, especially if you're a lawyer, has an obligation to get that right. And this was only, this is the ne plus ultra in Eternal because you're writing about this historical event and there's so many people who don't know it. I mean, you know, it's interesting when I, I'm lucky enough to have my other books published in Italy. And so I tour in Italy and they, my Italian publisher took me to Rome and they said, let's go to the ghetto. The artichokes are phenomenal, you know, and you go there and you realize way back, uh, this was about 10 years ago at this point. Um, there was, there wasn't even a plaque up. There mm. wasn't anything that said, this is hallowed ground. A war crime happened here. And the truth is, 
even in the novel, I, I visited for research a real true transit camp. There were concentration camps in Italy. This is a transit camp on the way to Auschwitz where Italian Jews were sent. This place is open one day a week. Uh, I went there the, as I got out the cab driver who was very silent, which is weird because cab drivers always talk and you see him. I, I never shut up. I, I'll talk to anybody. <laughs> and, uh, and especially cab drivers because you learn so much. And he spoke English. But when we got out, um, he said, this is a dark mark on Italy's history. You know, no one wants to look at this too hard and no one was jumping around to tell you stuff and nobody wanted another Nuremberg, which was all the more reason why, you know, little Scottolini here has to go blow the cover. But I thought it was really important. What about your um, characters? Do you have, well, I'm, I'm not sure, five, six point of view characters. I mean, uh, Elisabetta, Marco, and Sandro are the main ones, but um, talk about that, how you how you chose point of view characters and, and why multiple point of view characters? Well, I think there was so much going on in the story that it was really the best way to tell it. And there's so much conflict in the story. You know, it just came out of the story. You can't, you because it, it was it was true of the time. Jews and, Gen, Jews and Gentiles were friends. So nice. they're, they're husbands and wives. All of a sudden, laws come and say you can't be married, you can't be friends, you can't visit each other, you, you will go to jail. It's, that, that's incredible. So I just, my key though is I never, um, I never want to confuse readers. I, I think clarity is really key. There's a lot of novels that are, this is not even clear. So I, I keep it as few as possible. It's three families. It's sometimes the parents um, and, and the fathers. And I wanted to keep it simple. Uh, and it ended up being illustrative. You know, I'm, I'm happy. I love talking to you because I think it's so great. I, I want everyone to write if they want to write. I, I got so much rejection early on. My favorite rejection letter was from a, a New York agent who said, oh, we don't have time to take any more clients. And if we did, we wouldn't take you. Oh, my gosh. I know. <laughs> and, you know, I, I mean, I, I see that guy. I saw that guy a few years ago, at Book Expo, where I was a keynote. And I was like, dude, you don't even get in my path, man, because I am Italian and, and vendetta is an Italian word for a <laughs> I just was, I go so like we have a little bit of that keep hate alive in my family. Like, we we get angry for a long time. And um and I forgot what the point of that was. I just think that people <laughs> should be able to write so that I don't like when people step on other people's dreams. And especially, you know, the whole message of eternal, like, you know, when you think about the beginning, because I I've been pulling quotes my whole life. I pull quotes. I write them down in little notebooks like mm -hmm. we talked about. And uh, I said, what is the really, what's the quote going to be at the beginning of the eternal? And I really wanted to do love conquers all. And then I said, it looked at it one day. I said, you know, Lisa, you're supposed to be like, like, this is just not esoteric enough, man. This sounds like a greeting card. <laughs> like you're supposed to be throwing some heat here and you, Jesus, what can you come up? And, but all of these other quotes I had, and I have them throughout, that was the one. And I thought that is really the message. And I think it's true of everything. And it's true of writing as well. If you find that you really want to write and that's, and you just want to give it a try, it goes to your identity. You know, we stop asking people what they want to be when they're seven, you know, mm -hmm. but you can want to try to write. You can want to try to be a writer, or you could just want to try to write a novel. And my advice is always just do it. And we can talk more about advice if you want, because I love to give advice. I'm so, I never shut up with advice. And, um, and it's also protect your candle, which is, I, I always envision, and I think of it every day myself. Every day, this is my full-time job. But I always think of those people running around in big Gothic houses with drafts and they're in the nighttime and they have a candle and they have a hand in front of the candle. And I always see them protect their candle. And mm -hmm. I think that's what my writing is. And that's what writing is when you're a grown up, whether it's your full-time job or not. Because for, for two years, it wasn't my full-time job. You have a mortgage, you have bills, you have laundry, you have kids, you have a, you know, a car that needs to go to get inspected. You have all the crap. Your dog, you know, needs uh, its toenails clipped. I groomed the dog today. You know, you have so <laughs> many obligations. Everybody has so much obligations. And as you get older, you have more and more and more. And, I, and you have to protect your candle. You have to, if your wish is to write, 
You have to give yourself the chance to do it. And my word counts 2000 words a day, but yours doesn't, you know, writers doesn't, it can be 50, it can be a hundred, just so you do it every day. You know, E.L. Doctorow says, you know, some, some great quote, my daughter has the quote, she just became a novelist. It says something like, um, you know, you can only see so far in your headlights, but you can make the whole journey that way. That is kind of brilliant because you just want to get your little word count and every day get your little word count and don't do anything. Give it your priority. People want to go to lunch with you. Say no. It's okay. <laughs> wait a day. The laundry can totally wait. The laundry can always wait. The house can go filthy. You know, you matter and your little wish matters and people deserve that. We, we all deserve that. How did you find your way into writing? Did, did you start with short stories? Did you go to an MFA no, program? <laughs> I no, no. And I don't think you need to do that stuff. I really don't. I really don't. I, uh, first of all, I love to read and I secretly always wanted to become a writer, but my family didn't have any means. And I was like, I guess you got to go to law school if you're going to try to make a living. And long story short, my first divorce happened. And my daughter was born about the same time, which is which shows you what a good planner I am. But um, I was, and that was when I just fell in love with my, I just was, I fell in love with my kid. I was just like, this is the most fun I ever had hanging with this kid. Like, this is the best thing ever. And I thought to myself, you got to change your life now. You can't go be a trial lawyer like I was and have a child. But also I had no, I had no alimony, I had minimal child support. And I just said, you know, you always wanted to be a writer and you're broke now. So how much broker can you get? Turns out you can get broker. But that was <laughs> what did it for me. I just said, you know, your back's against the wall. Give it a shot. And all five years of rejection. And went back to work as a law clerk when my daughter was finally in kindergarten. And, um, and one week after that, my first book sold, not for a living wage, and not to, and I couldn't pay back all the credit card debt that I had earned, you know, accumulated trying to keep myself alive and her. Um, so that's how, that's how I, it was really uh, the, the wonderful gift of my daughter and just wanting to be home with her. And that was what I accomplished. I accomplished, you know, it's been a very slow building career, no Oprah, no movies, no Thunder striking, wow, Reese Witherspoon, you know, none of that, none of that stuff that happens. It's just, a, but I feel very lucky because it's very earned. I've made it, you know, year by year, just getting, I started in paperback original, which is probably something you never don't even know what it is. I couldn't get a hardback deal in the beginning. And, but eventually I won a prize and lost a prize and, you know, just bit by bit kept at it. And my readership grew. And I'm very lucky. I mean, I'm honestly lucky and blessed in them. And um, they came with me as I wrote different things. I wrote a, you know, I have a kind of a legal thriller series, they call it. I don't think it's a legal thriller. I still think it's stories about women, but makes people happy to say legal thriller. I write domestic dramas and I write humor. I mean, I write a humor column for the Sunday Inquirer, which is in published in novels. I put one up every in Facebook on Sunday morning. Everybody can read it for free. Mm -hmm. And then they came with me to eternal, you know, it's kind of like as a writer and people listening should know this. I mean, you should write what's in your heart. You, that will be great. That will totally be great. It will be risky, but writing is risky. Life is risky. I think sadly women aren't well socialized to that. I think we certainly my generation wasn't, I think it's getting better, but I just say to myself as weird as that sounds, um, just do it because writing is very, very behavioral. And that's why the Anne Lamott book and the Stephen King book are so right. It's just sit down and do it. Philip Ross says, don't judge it. Is it isn't for you to judge it, just write it. And because for me, I'm kind of still insecure. And so the, the job for me is getting out of my own way, especially with this. I was like, oh my God, Lisa, you don't know what you're doing. Like this is a 20 year period. You write books that take place over four days. <laughs> I mean, truly. And one family and what the hell you have, you know, all those little negative voices. Where do you think you get off kind of, you know, but I try to shelve them. I, try, I actually picture myself moving to, to the margin. And so I advise people to visualize whatever you want and just do it anyway. And, and I'll, another thing I tell myself is get it down, then get it good. Because that's the key, especially for women, that, not to go on and on, but it's, um, you know, that idea that we often feel as women that we're not ready. Oh, I'm not ready. I can do it. 
but just not yet. Mm-hmm. And that becomes a real crutch, I think. It, and it's wrong. Uh, men, they're better at it. They're socialized. Go f- explore, throw yourself in. You'll figure it out. That's a much better way. It's, and I'm, I'm generalizing grossly here. But if you're the kind of person that says you're not ready, the answer is you absolutely are. And don't wait. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. right. Right. I'm right. I know I'm right. <laughs> I know it, Barbara. You're right. <laughs> my mother always said when you're right, am I right or am I right? <laughs> Sounds like my mother too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to know something very important. And that is because before I ask you the question, an important character dies a little more than a third into the book. Mm-hmm. And without really talking about who or how, I think it's really hard for writers, especially new writers, um, to kill off characters, especially when you have grown to love them. And how do you do that? That was hard. And I didn't see it coming. I really didn't. I just said, this is, you have to, I'm always look for plausibility. And that's true with anything, like even with research, you know, I'll send this, I, I, I'll figure out everything. I educated myself all this history and I wrote the story and then I sent it to a historian because I didn't want the history to lead. It can never be. It's I always think of Moby Dick, you know, Melville, the endless pages of harpoons. Here's me criticizing Melville. But it's a little bit like enough already with the harpoons. Like, we get it. <laughs> so I was, now I forget what I'm answering. Uh, oh, yeah. so what happened was I said, well, you know what would happen? This is what would happen. So it goes to the question of plausibility, credibility. This is what would happen. And that kind of is a shame. But at the same time, you are really trying, you can't have a book about hard and violent times without hard violence. Now, I think it's, you know, and I actually don't like that. I will tell you secretly that these books that sanitize these events make me crazy because that's not authentic and that's not true. So I'm not going to be gory or anything. I mean, but that's that people died, uh, that people died during a dictatorial regime is something that we know. So when we know that happened, you can't have that and have nobody die or you're just pulling your punch. And that, no, everyone who's listening knows that, the, as I said, the truth has a ring. And so I, I had to make, I, had, I didn't make that choice. The Times made that choice. I just told it. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. It's, uh, and I guess if you're, I mean, historical fiction, mystery fiction, I mean, literary fiction, all fiction, this happens. <laughs> yes, yes, it does. And well, I think what's sort of interesting about the whole arc of this book, which I didn't plan either, but I said, wow, you just kind of worked through this, is that you see people undergo this hardship and you see them lose. Like at one point, Marco says, hell, I lost a war. I mean, they, what, what's that? Look at the deprivation they go through. Of course, the beginning of the novel, and this is why I did it. The beginning is all full of, you know, I think you feel transported to Italy and Trastevere and the beautiful, the foliage and the oleander and the food, and you can taste the, you know, the fried foods and the, you know, and I did that because, well, first off, it was real, but also because, you know, Dante has a great quote about this, you know, there's no greater sorrow than to look back in times of unhappiness and remember when you were happy. And that's so true. And I experienced it in this. I was like, oh, what would that be like? It's like it multiplies your sorrow a thousandfold. Oh, that was us then. Oh, I remember that. So when you feel that, that, ah, that angst and that wistfulness and all that stuff, it happened through the food because it, it, it was integral really to the history that Rome lives on, lives to eat. And here's a country that gets so thoroughly bombed in the South that they run out of wheat and they, the wheat fields are bombed. They run out of pasta. That's when the tide turned. The more I read about it, the fact that Italians were starving really turned them against Mussolini. Mm-hmm. And, and that the Nazis come in and weaponize food against the Jews of Rome is, um, is just heartrending and horrifying. So you have to tell everything you have to tell it so then at the end you see they come through so it's what happens what are your losses and what is it to be a survivor because if you're lucky you survive and aren't we there today aren't we there today mm. you, we get to talk to each other you're this lovely person 
here we are just talking about books. I'll never shut up. I'm so sorry about that because you make this easy <laughs> and I'm a little lonely and caffeinated. <laughs> but, but we are all coming through something and we will still process years from now what we've come through. And I hope this won't be, I hope there won't be variants and more vaccines and people won't take them and all the stuff and the whatever. We will all be this glorious chaotic mix of humanity trying to muddle forward and love each other and survive. You know, speaking of the pandemic, how is it releasing a book during the pandemic? How has, what would you be doing differently? Do you think? Oh my God, you'd be doing everything differently. Yeah. Because first off, I love to tour. I, I'm, a, I'm a people person stuck in a house. Like I, I, my daughter once said, she's so smart. She wrote a book called Ghosts of Harvard. I have to plug it. And her name is Francesca Sartell. And she, but she said this once. And I was like, oh my God, you know, when your kid says something really smart, mm. she said, she said, some writers write to go within and some writers write to go without. They want to connect. And that's us. I said, that's so true. So I love touring and I tour mostly in independent bookstores and I meet all my readers in over 30 years, you'll see the same faces and they bring their friends and I watch them grow up. And there's a real no joke connection. I answer my email. It's me on social media. I like it. So when the pandemic came, besides the fact it's horrifyingly, I mean, I know people who are sick. I know I've lost people. Um, it was terribly distracting. It was an awfully, you know, traumatizing time. So the least of your worries is you're not on book tour. But I'm very aware as a person who loves books that I love bookstores and I want them to survive. You know, I find myself reading more than I ever did. I read so much during this pandemic, my eyes are falling out, but I, I found it very centering. I always find reading in the long form and I scroll on Twitter like a freak too. But I think reading is so nurturing and so centering. And it's a communication with, NB says a novel is a unified consciousness. I think that's true. So you mm-hmm. read a novel and you're like in somebody's soul a little bit. Like if they're writing, like an eternal, right? I'm opening my heart up. There's a lot of emotional truth in this book. It's all bits of me. And you know that. And that's what makes the connection. So you can connect that way through books. And as a physical matter, it's look, this is kind of cool to be able to talk to you. Um, I, it's expensive to fly me out to California. My beloved publisher would do it. And I've been doing that kind of stuff for 30 years, but doing these zooms and virtual things, I'm going to zoom with 30 book clubs. You, you know, I have book clubs for 13 years. I live on a farm in Pennsylvania. I have had a huge book club party at my house, 1500 people over the weekend. Mm. I've done that for, for 13 years with my daughter. And they're for people who read our books. And that's connection, man. And that's why I do it. Because my mother said, if you really appreciate somebody, you got to have them over. I'm like, mom, there's a lot of people. But, <laughs> but the point is, I'm the connected of connected. I'm the capo de tutti copy of connection. So this has really been hard, but we find other ways. And um, the technology has been remarkable. I mean, I feel very close talking to you now. It was nice to see your face before to make that connection with you. Yes. Um, right. We, yeah. I feel connected up. So there's a way to do it. It's doable. We just have to try and we are. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Where would we be without zoom and, and all of these right. to connect? I can't I mean, imagine. In my life, I've never done what I did for eternal, which is all these research videos, you know, somewhere in it was in November. I started putting them up on Facebook, not just putting them up, but introducing them because I thought I kind of miss my readers mm-hmm. and I think we're all home and I'm alone, man. So I'm like, just talk to them. I've never done anything like that. 23 videos over months leading to the publication of this book, because also I had so much information that it was killing me that I couldn't put in the book. <laughs> and I was like, I was just killing me. And I was like, you know, this is kind of a good companion. So people can like, now the videos are all there or they're on my website. They're on Facebook. You can, you want to see where Elizabeth really lives? Go look at the video. I picked out a house in Trust Everett. And I never would have done, I never in a million years would have done that before. And I never would have done it, but for the pandemic. But I think it was kind of cool. And now I see the reader really liked it. And I see other authors doing it. I'm like, yeah, yeah, go for it. Why not? I've got, I've got to find yeah. that. Yeah, I'm going to yeah, go, go 
go to my website. You'll see them all up there. And your and website is? Godalini.com is just my last name. Okay. And I, you can email me at it. I answer my email. I try to answer almost all of it. But we connect. Yes. Well, I have to ask you, you know, I collect typewriters and I love that Elisabetta has um, an Olivetti. Um, right. Talk about that. Well, you know, and I was so interested in all the research that was like, just, I love source material research. And when I realized that, you know, I just bottom line, I said, I felt like I need to own this typewriter that would be her typewriter. So I started to do research into Olivetti's and learned that they were really a leading edge family in anti-fascism, which was so interesting because I thought of that Bob Dylan quote when he always had on his guitar, like this guitar kills fascists. Mm -hmm. And I was like, this typewriter kills fascists. And then it was cool because I, I found it online and I bought it. It wasn't very expensive. But the first thing that happened when it came was that I saw that the keys were white. And I said, and it's, an, it's Italian, it's an Italian type. So I was like, wow, I, I would have got, that killed me that I would have gotten that detail wrong because I have no details wrong in this book. I'm just telling you. And, and I must tell you too, this is going to sound a little mystical, but we all have our talismans. And I, uh, when I tell you, when I put my fingers on those keys, I felt a little connection. I said, okay, <laughs> who is this woman now? Who is she? You know, she's not really me, but she's got a lot of me in her. And I love having that typewriter. It's, it's really wonderful. And I will type thank you notes on it now or something. And I'm like, am I, have I, am I completely affected? But no, honestly, just really like the typewriter. <laughs> yeah, no, typewriters are great. Yeah. Uh, they're just they're great. History. You know, it's history. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Barbara, it is history. It is history. It's a history of a family. It is the history of the Olivetti family right under my fingertips. And it's, it's just remarkable. We have just a few minutes left. And if you just tuned in, you are a little bit late, but this show along with many others will be up on iTunes in, in a matter of time. So um, go to Writers on Writing and um, find it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. And when this is posted, you will get it in your inbox. I am... Um, Curious, because you write in different genres and subgenres, do you prefer one over the other? No, because I actually don't cop to any of it. I don't <laughs> think any of it. I know that like books have to go somewhere in bookstores and libraries have to put them somewhere. But I, as a person who's written nonfiction, all right, humorous nonfiction, I don't think there's any difference between fiction and nonfiction, except that you want to signal people what's true and what's not. But in vis-a-vis -vis the writing of it, our end of it, the people sitting down at the laptop, it's all the same. You, you're either you're telling it literal true or you're telling it emotional truth. And both of those things in a way, um, you know, it's a distinction without a difference a little bit as vis-a-vis -vis writing it. it. You write it the same. You just have a story to tell and you're telling it to yourself in the first place. Are you always working on something? Are you working on something now? Or are you focusing on <clears throat> promoting eternal? No, I'm, I'm always working on something. Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm writing a, a next domestic thriller, uh, which, which is interesting because the great thing and people should know too, is that all writing feeds writing. That's why if something doesn't get published, don't feel bad. My first novel was never published. And then I lost it. You know, we used to put on little discs. I don't know where the disc is. It's like, damn. <laughs> but uh, that's show you how planned, what how organized I am. But now that I've written Eternal, and here's its you know big ass historical fiction and and deep and layered. I think my novels have always been layered. Uh, so that's why the thriller makes them sound a little superficial, even though I use the term, not you. But I, now that I've written Eternal, I can see myself approaching this next domestic drama a little differently. Mm -hmm. I'm like, you know what? You, can, you have a little, I think of it as real estate. I was like, you have a little real estate here. You can tell them a little more about this backstory. You can tell a little more about this main character's father. Um, that will give this a nice, rich layer and give him more of an arc. And I might not have done as much of that before. Uh, so, so all writing feeds writing. It really, somebody said it, it's like a muscle. The more you use it, the stronger it gets. And that's a really good thing to know if you get rejected or anything, or just if you go, well, why did I write that dopey thing? It's never a dopey thing. This is something you learn on the job in full view of everybody, if you're lucky. And uh, 
And I think if people just keep at it, if they really want it and protect their candle, they can have it too. There's no reason they can't. And Nana, you mentioned Nana earlier. She has she has wonderful dialogue. Oh, thank um, you. Say say a few words about Nana. Well, you know, it's funny. I don't. I never base characters on anybody, and I didn't really intend to base uh, Nona on my mother. But this character Elisabetta doesn't have a mother, and I thought, well, there were so many women involved in the restaurant business, and especially after the war. And I thought, this is interesting. You know, she's looking for a mother figure, but I didn't want to lay it on too heavy. And also my mother was extremely loving. My mother was like, I was, you know, in my, we had the stereotypical Italian family. Like if I farted, it was really cute. Like I could do nothing <laughs> wrong. I could tell you stories. I'll tell you my dad said, he used to go to signings and they said, dad, your mom, you're, you must be so proud of your daughter. And, and he said, I would, I was proud of her the day she came out of the egg. And that's, I know. And that's how they were. They just loved us. We didn't have to get good grades. We didn't have to make money. We, my mother was always like, stop reading it will ruin your eyes. She never, but anyway, but she was a, she had a great sense of humor and she was a bit of a wise guy. And she, so she was really loving. Nona is a little less mushy than my mother, but that comeback, my mother was funny. You know, she was witty. And I think wit is an aspect of intelligence. My mother graduated high school, but didn't get to go to college. And I wanted that for Nona. I wanted that powerful older woman because there is that power in women. And I always want to celebrate that power in women. I think we don't always give it credit. And especially, God knows, in older women uh, who get so marginalized. And, and I really felt that Nona, that notion of a matriarch is a powerful one. And I really wanted a, a, a matriarch in this that, that was a little bit underplayed, you know, but has a personal power and, and that is so loving and therefore Elisabetta in a way that is, that Elisabetta is slow to understand. And I was, as, as I wrote it, I won't give it away, but there's a part when Elisabetta realizes she's writing something and something comes to her and she said, oh my God, that's, that's Nona. And mm -hmm. I had that insight at the same moment Elisabetta had it. I was sitting there, Barbara, I was crying my eyes out, <laughs> which is either kind of crazy or egotistical, but also that you're so into this book that you're imagining that you're at the Olivetti and that when you have a realization that this person who is in your life, when you understand their significance to you and their meaning to you. And I felt that come over me. And so I gave that to Elisabetta and it really worked. And I, part of me thinks that I lost my mother this time of year, several years ago. And I think that was her, man. I just feel like that was her <laughs> just a little bit. Mm. Right. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a great note to end on. Um, you've just written a wonderful, another wonderful book and it's just been a great delight talking with you. Thank you so much. Well, you're very kind. Thanks for letting me go on. You really are. You made this so um, relaxed and I appreciate that. Thank you. That was Lisa Scotellini. Her new book is Eternal, published by Putnam. We'll be back here next week. Thank you for listening.
got chips on, oh, for sure.